Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Turn in your Bibles tonight to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 8. Let's pray together. Lord, we do know that you are a rewarder of those who diligently seek you. As we're gathered here tonight, Lord, you know the condition of our hearts. You know why we're here. You know what level of interest we hold. And you know what we need more than we do. We do want to learn. We do want to analyze. We do want to synthesize the story and the thoughts. But Lord, we want to apply the truths that, that change lives, I pray would change our lives. Thank you that you are committed to our growth and thank you that we can gather as a spiritual family and get into the word verse by verse, line upon line, from one end to the other. So bless this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you know that Matthew has been presenting Jesus Christ as Messiah. That's his thrust. And he laid the foundation of that presentation in the first seven chapters of his book. He begins by giving us the means by which Jesus holds the legal authority to that title. And thus Matthew gives us the genealogy of Christ, son of Abraham, son of David, and follows the genealogical lineage down the line. Then he gives us his birth, showing to us that when Jesus was born, he fulfilled Scripture, fulfilling the prediction that Isaiah wrote in chapter 7, a virgin will conceive and bring forth a child You will call his name Emmanuel, God with us. Then, like any king who would have somebody announcing his coming, a forerunner, Matthew gives to us John the Baptist, fulfilling Isaiah chapter 40, a voice crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight paths for his coming. Then, to give us The moral qualifications, he presents Jesus at his baptism, followed by Jesus at his temptation. And then Matthew, in chapter 5 and 6 and 7, uniquely gives to us the information Jesus gave at the Sermon on the Mount. Now we have the king giving the instructions of the kingdom, the kingdom values, the kingdom ethics. This is what life is like when Jesus reigns as king in the lives of those who follow him. In chapter 8, we now have the demonstration of Jesus as the Messiah. As Dr. Collins said, he's going to prove it. He's going to do miracle after miracle after miracle. So in chapters 8 and 9, we have a listing of 10 miracles. Now chapter 8 opens up 
by saying, when he had come down from the mountain. Do you remember how chapter 5 began? It said that when Jesus saw the multitude that had gathered, he went up to a mountain. And when he was seated, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, etc. And the Sermon on the Mount begins. Now it's over. Jesus comes off the mountain, and ten miracles follow. Now I can't help but want to compare the Ten Commandments given by Moses on Mount Sinai with the Ten Miracles given by Jesus after he leaves this mountain. And I wonder if Matthew, who wrote for a Jewish audience, didn't perhaps also have this in mind. Can't prove it, but it's interesting. The law cannot change a person. It can give you the standard, but now we have Jesus after that great announcement of the kingdom instruction, giving life-changing proof of who He is. Irrefutable evidence. Jesus is showing them, and in one place, He will say, if you don't believe Me for the things that I say, at least believe because of the sake of the works that I do themselves. They testify of who I am. Something else. Since Matthew is presenting Jesus as the Messiah, and one of the themes throughout the book is the kingdom, and the king, and the kingdom of God, and the kingdom ethics, in chapters 8 and 9, with these ten miracles, we have a foretaste of the coming kingdom age, when Jesus will rule upon the earth in that kingdom age for a thousand years. I'll just read a little pericope out of the book of Isaiah, chapter 35. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened, and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. Then the lame shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the dumb shall sing. Isaiah goes on to describe the geological changes that will take place upon the earth. That's the kingdom age. Christ gives us a foretaste of what life is going to be like when He comes back, there is a recreation, you might say, of the present earth before it's destroyed a thousand years later, bringing in a new heaven and a new earth. But in that kingdom age, what life is going to be like? Matthew gives us some insight. Now, it says, when He had come down from the mountain, great multitudes followed Him. And behold, a leper, he's first on the list of those who are healed. But if you remember back a few chapters, Matthew gives us sort of like a little outline of the life of Jesus and the ministry. Back in chapter 4, if you go back there, verse 23... It says in 4.23, Matthew 4.23, Jesus went about all of Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease among the people. That's what Jesus did. That sort of summed up His ministry, preaching, teaching, healing. 
In chapter 4, verse 17, we see him preaching. Repent, he said, for the kingdom of God is at hand. He went preaching, he went teaching in the synagogues, but in chapter 5, 6, and 7, beyond the synagogues, with the Sermon on the Mount. And he went about healing, and the healing is seen in the next two chapters. Now, something about Matthew. If you compare Matthew's account with the other gospel accounts, you discover that Matthew is not writing chronologically, but he's writing thematically. He's giving to us the authority of Jesus as the messianic king. This is Jesus proving that he's the Messiah by his miracles. And so, miraculous works and also miraculous works filled with compassion. That's the theme that Matthew is following. Showing that the king, Jesus, is who he claimed that he was. Now back to chapter 8, and we just finished one verse. When he had come down from the mountain, great multitudes followed him. And behold, a leper came and worshipped him, saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus put out his hand and touched him, saying, I am willing. Be cleansed. Immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, See that you tell no one, but go your way and show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded as a testimony to them. This man had leprosy. And he knew that Jesus was able to heal him. He just wasn't sure if Jesus was willing. So he said, Lord, if you will. Leprosy was a loathsome disease, and there were two basic types. One, a general skin disease, short of what you and I call full-blown leprosy. And then, number two, that kind, full-blown leprosy. Because there were so many skin diseases, and it was unsure where the skin disease was going to lead, it was all classified under leprosy, so that if a spot showed up on your skin, it would have to be examined by a priest. You would be isolated for a period of time. The spot would be re-examined. If it was just a mild skin infection or an aberration, you'd be allowed back into the society. But if it was the second kind, your life would change forever. The second kind came from a bacteria known as Microbacterium leprae. It's been classified as Hansen's disease, named after a Dr. Hansen who discovered what it was. It's highly treatable today. In fact, the last known case of this kind of leprosy was seen in the Cook Islands back in 1986, I believe. 1996, excuse me. So it it still has a modern counterpart, but it has, for the most part, been eradicated. It was progressive, so that if a spot showed up on your skin, eventually the peripheral nerves of your appendages 
would be affected. You'd lose feeling in your fingers, in your toes, in your skin. And so the lesion could spread, could eat away parts of your flesh, and you would never feel it. Because you would lack the ability to feel, you could be near a fire, you could do damage to it, cut it, you wouldn't feel it. If you contracted that kind of leprosy, you would be shunned from society. Severe social implications. Number one, you were kicked out of town. You were outside the camp. If somebody was approaching you and you were within 300 feet of them and they were coming downwind from you, You'd have to shout out to them, unclean, unclean. In other words, don't come any closer at your own risk because leprosy was an airborne disease. If you were within 150 feet and the wind is blowing against you as the leper, you're you're upwind from it. 150 feet, you have to shout out, unclean. So you are ostracized. You have no human contact. You lose all contact with your family. If you're married, you don't kiss your wife anymore. You don't hug your children anymore. You're kept outside the camp, complete and total isolation. Now, you could go to synagogue if that synagogue had a little room called a mechitza, a little holding room for those infected with leprosy. But again, they would kind of peer through the grate. They they weren't able to really participate. This loathsome disease that was so isolating, so horrifying, it was a living death. Slow, painful, eventually painless because you lose feeling, but painful socially kind of a death. An outcast from society sees Jesus, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. Jesus put out his hand and touched him. Now just think of that for a moment. This leper had not felt a clean human hand in who knows how long. Nobody was allowed to touch him. It was unlawful. And and some commentators bring this up that in one sense Jesus broke the law because he touched a leper. Well, when Jesus touched a leper, they were immediately healed, so he didn't break the law. He said, I'm willing, and he reached out and touched him, and he said, I'm willing, be cleansed. And immediately, his leprosy was cleansed. Something I want you to note. The leper knew that Jesus could do it. He wasn't sure if Jesus wanted to do it. So he said, if you're willing. I've been rebuked before by people from certain faith churches, faith movement churches, that have told me, listen, when you ask God for something, you always ask in faith. You never ask Him, Lord, if it's your will. You say, I know it is your will, and because it is your will, heal me. I'm a child of the king, and in all authority, almost I demand you to heal me. I think that's a wrong approach. And I have no problem saying, 
if it's your will. Because I never presume to know God's will. Sometimes the Lord may allow me to suffer physically because He wants to work something deeper inside of me than just I have faith for this healing alone. You want proof of that? Paul the Apostle. He had a thorn in the flesh. A better word would be a stake. Some painful, loathsome disease. Some people think an eye disease. He said, for this thing I besought the Lord three times that He would take it away. But the Lord finally said, my grace is enough. It's all you need. My grace is sufficient for you. So you know what Paul did? He said, therefore I will glory in my infirmity. I thank God for it. It's a gift. So I have no problem saying, Lord, if it's your will, because frankly, I don't always know God's will. I don't pretend to know God's will. Even Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane said, Lord, Father, if it's your will, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. So I take my cues from Jesus. And I think it's always safe and good theology and good practice to always entrust your desire into the sovereign care of God. And Jesus said to him, see that you tell no one. Now, I imagine that when Jesus reached out his hand toward the leper and touched him, the whole crowd went, (gasps) they gasped like, oh no. Because though it was an airborne disease and he was awfully close to Jesus, Jesus was showing them that The very people that were considered the outcasts were not an outcast to him. He would touch. And then he says, I didn't finish the sentence. Jesus said to him, see that you tell no one, but go your way and show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded as a testimony to them. Now, I find this interesting. Let me explain myself. In Leviticus chapter 14, chapter 13 tells the law for the leper, when he is a leper, you stay away from people, you're, you're isolated. But in chapter 14, it says, This is the law of the leper in the day of his cleansing. I find it interesting that the law of Moses anticipated the possible miraculous healing of leprosy. Although... Though it's there. Here's the law of the leper in the day of his cleansing. There really was no record of anyone historically being cleansed miraculously except in the days of Elisha the prophet when a man by the name of Naaman, a Syrian, was cleansed of his leprosy. But it's there in the laws of God is saying, I'm anticipating it. Here's the law of the leper. So Jesus says, according to the Levitical law in chapter 14, A sacrifice has to be made. The leper would take two birds, kill one over running water, take the live bird and some hyssop and some cedar wood and would would dunk the live bird in the blood. The blood with the hyssop would be sprinkled upon the leper and the other bird would be set free. That was the law. Jesus said, go do that. Why? He said, don't tell anyone for this reason, I believe. Number one, If this guy goes out and broadcasts it everywhere that he was healed of leprosy, especially those who know him, Jesus already has crowds following him. It's hard for him to be mobile from place to place. He's going to attract an even larger crowd of people who only want to be healed. They're seeking him for the wrong motivation, the wrong reason. 
Number two, he's going to get a lot more flack and opposition. There's a whole growing group of people that despise Jesus and are opposed to him. If this guy gets that word out, that animosity is only going to grow. Now, both of those things happened because this guy did not keep it to himself. He went out and broadcast it to everybody. Can you blame him? If you were healed miraculously, you said, now, somebody said, now, don't tell anybody. It'd be awfully hard to keep it quiet. So I don't really fault him for that, except Jesus told him not to. So I do, I do and I don't. So Jesus said, go make the appropriate sacrifice, go to the priest. Now this would alert the priest about something going on. Here's a, here's a leper, goes to a priest and say, hey, I, I've had leprosy and my friends can attest to it, my family can attest to it, but I was miraculously cured and according to the law, Leviticus 14, here's the sacrifice I am to bring. A red flag would go up in the minds and in the hearts of the priest, Right? Because Jesus is basically sending to the priest his business card, his calling card, saying someone with messianic credentials has arrived, is on the move, is on the scene. And if you were smart, you'd check it out and take note of it. So make the sacrifice and go to the priest. And when Jesus had entered Capernaum, Here's now a second miracle he gives. A centurion came to him, pleading with him. Capernaum. If you have a map at the back of your Bible, and you can turn to it quickly, you'll see that Capernaum is on the northwestern shore of the Sea of Galilee. It's a cool spot. First time I saw Capernaum, I thought, I get it. I'd want to make this place my headquarters too. It's right on the shore of a beautiful lake. It's got, for the most part, ideal weather. In the summer it can get a little bit hot, but they were used to it. It's just gorgeous. Jesus headquartered in Capernaum for his three-and-a-half-year ministry. He was from Nazareth, but he headquartered in Capernaum. Now here's something to keep in mind about Capernaum because you're going to read about it through the Gospels. In Capernaum, there were more miracles that Jesus performed than any other place. That is why in a, in a few chapters, he's going to pronounce a curse on Capernaum. In fact, all the cities around Galilee. It says, Then Jesus began to upbraid those cities in which he had done his miraculous works. He said, Woe unto you, Korazin, which is just a little bit south of Capernaum. Woe unto you, Bethsaida, which is just a little bit north of Capernaum. And then he said, Woe unto you, Capernaum, for you have been exalted to heaven. You will be cast down to hell. For if the mighty works that had been done in you were done in Sodom, she would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. And it will be more tolerable in the judgment for Sodom. Interesting that Dr. Collins is digging Sodom. Than it will be for Capernaum in the day of judgment. They had the proof. The Messiah lived there, spoke there, worked there miraculously. 
And they saw, but for the most part, they did not believe. So Jesus entered Capernaum, verse 5. And a centurion came to him, pleading with him, saying, Lord, my servant is lying at home paralyzed, dreadfully tormented. Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. The centurion answered and said, Lord, I am not worthy that you should come under my roof, but only speak a word and my servant will be healed. A centurion was an officer in the Roman army. He, he oversaw 100 men, hence the name centurion, a century. A centurion was regarded as the backbone of the Roman Empire. Now this guy had a servant, a slave. Something uh, just to keep in the back of your mind as a side note, every time there's a reference in the New Testament to a centurion, he's always seen in favorable light, positive light. As men of great and noble character, and most of them were. And this guy in particular is very interesting because he exhibits incredible faith, incredible insight into the character and nature of Jesus. But he has a serpent. Now, what does a Roman soldier, especially a centurion, care about a slave? The Greek philosopher Aristotle said, a slave is simply a tool to work with just as a tool is an inanimate slave. So everybody in college goes, Oh, Aristotle, man, he was so cool. Well, that's what he thought about people. A slave is just an item. Dispose as as you will. But here is a centurion who evidently loves his slave. And and the word servant that he uses here is the Greek word pais, which is sometimes translated servant, sometimes translated child. And could refer to his son. Now, it's not his son, but evidently he has the kind of relationship with this servant, and he loves him very much, and he's compassionate toward him that he is seeking Jesus. And so Jesus says, I will come and heal him. The centurion answers, Lord, I'm not worthy that you should come under my roof. Only speak a word, and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man under authority, having soldiers under me, and I Say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard it, he marveled. It's a very interesting word, marvel, thalmazo. It's usually a word reserved for the response people have toward Jesus. Jesus did some miracle, and people go, wow! They marvel at it, Dalmazzo. The disciples will marvel when Jesus does a miracle later on in this chapter. Here is Jesus. It says, He marveled, and He said, Assuredly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. What's happening here? This centurion says, Look, I get it. I know authority. I'm a centurion for the Roman government. I know how this works. And I don't need you to come into my house because I understand your authority. Now follow carefully. 
The Roman emperor, the guy who sat in Rome, the bigwig, the Caesar, he had total and full authority. And he would delegate his authority to different officers, including centurions. Before 30 B.C., there was what's called the Roman Republic. That ended about 30 B.C. And after that, beginning with Caesar Augustus, was the Roman Empire. And when the Republic changed to the Empire, beginning with Caesar Augustus, full authority was given to that one single person who delegated the authority to officers. So that when a centurion representing the emperor would speak, it was the emperor's words that you would either obey or disobey. So if a soldier obeyed the order of a centurion or the servant obeyed, he's really obeying the word of the emperor. That's how they saw it. They got the authority, the chain of command. If somebody disobeys a centurion, he is flatly disobeying Caesar in Rome. So here's a guy who says, I understand authority, and I also can see that you, Jesus, operate under a similar system. You not only are under the authority of your Father in heaven, you wield the authority of your Father in heaven. So just as my words are the emperor's words, your words are God's words. See how insightful that is? And see why it says Jesus marveled and he said, man, I haven't seen... And anytime you see the words assuredly, I say to you, that's the translation of the old King Jimmy, verily, verily, I say unto you. That little phrase is alerting his disciples. He's about to say something really heavy here, really important, like, Listen carefully. And what he says is, I as the Jewish Messiah have not found this kind of insightful faith even among Jewish people. But I find it in this Roman centurion, this Gentile, those that are considered outcasts from the covenant. So you have in the first miracle, Jesus healing an outcast. He's cast out of the camp. Here you have the slave of a Gentile, a centurion, he's an outcast. He's outside of the covenant of Israel. And Jesus said, I haven't even found faith like this among the Jewish nation. And then verse 11. And I say to you, that many will come from the east and from the west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You know, typically when you think of being in heaven, you think of seeing um, Jesus, of course, and seeing Paul and Peter and John. And you think, boy, that's going to be really cool to hang out with Paul, like have, you know, lunch for like a hundred years. <laughs> kind of get filled in on the missionary journeys. What a cool guy that'll be. Or, you know, especially Jesus. But even Peter, you know, it's like, Peter, man, you got a lot of jokes told about you by a lot of people for a couple thousand years. But, man, it's great to meet you, buddy. But Jesus describes heaven a little bit differently for the Jewish audience. To the Jewish audience, he portrays Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the patriarchs. It's going to be fun to sit down with Abraham. Spend two or three thousand years with him. Find out what life was like for him, the decisions that he made. Walking with God by faith, being an old guy, trusting that he's going to have a baby. That whole episode of his life. It was believed by the Jews at the time of Jesus that in the coming kingdom age, 
They, the Jews, will sit down with the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all the Gentiles will be cast out or on the outside of that camp in heaven. It was that belief simply because in the book of Isaiah, it says there will be a feast. If you are taking notes, write down these two chapters and look them up later on your own. Research them on your own. Isaiah chapter 25 and Isaiah chapter 65, which are predictions of the coming kingdom age. It talks about a great feast that God will make and wonderful delicacies that will be eaten and the kind of fellowship that will be enjoyed. But in those passages, it also talks about the Gentile nations that will be gathered to the Jewish fold. Unlike what many of the Jews at the time of Jesus were thinking. So when Jesus said this, I'm sure his disciples now went... (gasps) Like, this is such a shock, because he's speaking about the coming kingdom age, and he has a few truths. Truth number one. Many Jewish people who thought they would be there, won't be there. Number two, many Gentiles that these guys thought wouldn't be there, will be there. And number three, the only way to get there is not through your physical genealogy, I'm a son or daughter of Abraham, but by trust and faith in Jesus Christ, like this centurion who trusted the authority and nature of Christ. It's an incredible truth. It's an incredible statement. And notice, and there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. In the original language in Greek, there's two definite articles, one before weeping and one before gnashing. It literally reads, there will be the weeping and the gnashing of teeth. Those definite articles are put there for the sake of emphasis, to emphasize the kind of horror that hell will be. The eternal punishment of hell will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And Jesus said to the centurion, Go your way. As you have believed, so let it be done for you. And his servant was healed that hour. Let me caution you when you read that verse. And Jesus said, as you have believed, let it be done for you. Some people like to make this a blanket statement. And say that if you have enough faith, you can accomplish anything. You can't doubt. You must believe. And as you believe, according to the amount of your faith, anything can be done. Now, Jesus is simply saying to this centurion who demonstrated this kind of deep and insightful Faith in Christ, in proportion to what you have expected, you will receive what you have expected to receive. That's what you expect to receive, that's what you're going to receive. But to make faith rather than God the issue, that's what the faith movement will do. The faith movement, churches that are involved in it, will say, if you have enough faith, you can have anything you want. So they're making faith the force that unlocks the promise. Instead of a sovereign God who goes, "Mm, not really, not going to do it. But I claim it, don't care, not going to have it. But I claim it in Jesus' name. I don't care, you can talk Southern all day long, not going to have it. (laughs) Because God is sovereign. And if we start thinking we can in our own human 
short-sightedness, presumed to know the will of God in situations, are claiming it and demanding this. It would be stupid. It'd be nuts if God would allow us to have that kind of power. So it's not a blanket statement. We do approach God with faith. And the Lord may say, yes, I'm willing, like he did to the leper. But he might say, like he said to Paul, nope, my grace is enough. There's something deeper I want to work in your life. I know what I'm doing. But to this man, his request was granted. And his servant was healed in that same hour. Now when Jesus had come into Peter's house, and Peter was living in Capernaum, he saw his wife's mother lying sick with a fever. I kind of like the idea that Peter had such a good relationship with his in-laws that his mother-in-law was at his house. Respect for age was very important in that day and age. And some men today think, oh my goodness, if my mother-in-law moved into my house, she turned from an in-law to an outlaw like in a week. Maybe she had lost her husband. Peter brought her to his home. And she had a fever. Now, in those days, oftentimes a fever was looked at as the disease itself rather than being symptomatic of some disease. It's just they have a fever. And so he touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she arose, and she served them. The first one that we read that Jesus healed was a leper, somebody outside the camp. Second one was the slave of a Gentile outside the covenant. Now we have Jesus healing a woman, someone who is outside the common value of a patriarchal society. Let me explain. 2,000 years ago in Israel, it was extremely patriarchal. So much so that pious Jews would sometimes pray this prayer daily. God, I thank you that I am not a slave, a Gentile, or a woman. In some cases, at birth, if a boy was born, there'd be a celebration. If a girl was born, everybody would pack up and go home. It was extremely one-sided, so that's why um, I take umbrage with anyone who says, well, the Bible and the Jesus and Christianity is so male-dominant, there's no... Hey, let me tell you something. Jesus is the one that liberated women. He didn't care what society said was an outcast or you don't touch or you don't hang out with. He included everyone. And so Paul will write that in Christ there's neither male female, Scythian, bond, or free. We're all one in Christ. And so Matthew is showing us thematically the kind of people that Jesus is reaching out to, and here it's a woman who has a fever. Now she's healed. And as soon as she's healed, she gets up. I almost see this as a second miracle, because it's one thing to have a fever and have the fever gone, but typically fever leaves a person very weakened. When this fever left her, Jesus gave her her strength back immediately. And, this is what I like, with her strength, she didn't go, Jesus, thanks a lot, man. See ya, I'm going shopping. 
She got up and immediately started what? Serving the Lord. One of the evidences that you've been touched by the Lord is that somewhere in your Christian journey, you're going to say, I don't want to just receive anymore. I want to give. I want to serve. I want to find my place. I want to find my spot. I want to understand my gift and exercise it. There was a woman who was saved and changed under the ministry of Charles Haddon Spurgeon. And she walked up to Spurgeon one night and said, Mr. Spurgeon, Jesus changed my life and he will never hear the end of it. I love that. He's never going to hear the end of it. I'm going to thank him and I'm going to serve him because he changed my life. Peter's mother-in-law was changed. She immediately got up and served him. Verse 16, And when evening had come, they brought to him those who were demon-possessed. Now, why, why when evening had come? Well, we have to read the other gospel accounts to understand why that's put here. This was the Sabbath. And you could only walk three-quarters of a mile, what is designated as a Sabbath day's journey. So the people who were living further away, and there were people all over the region, were waiting for the evening to come when they could look out and see the three stars that marked it as the end of the Sabbath and technically the beginning of a new day. And so the evening had come, they had a hot diggity dog, let's, let's have a Jesus party. So they rounded up all of their sick friends and relatives. <laughs> and he cast out evil spirits with a word and healed all those who were sick. So imagine after your evening meal in Peter's house, you look outside the window, outside the door, and on all sides, all four sides, it's like pandemonium. It's crowds swarming around. Just, you know, news travels fast when you have somebody who can heal people and cast demons out. With this kind of power, that news travels fast. People are just waiting for night to come. And so they came and they, they found where Jesus was. Now, it's one thing to be Peter's mother-in-law. It's another thing to be Peter. But it's quite another thing to be Peter's wife and look outside and see all of the ruckus going on around your house. She's going, oh my goodness, Peter, what have we gotten ourselves into following this Jesus guy? Life was upside down. So when evening had come, they brought to him all those who were demon-possessed, and he cast out the evil spirits with the word, or the spirits with the word, and healed all those who were sick. That it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying he himself took our infirmities and he bore our sicknesses. He's quoting Isaiah chapter 53. Now Isaiah chapter 53, you know the story very well. You know the prophecy how Isaiah is predicting the cleansing, redemptive ministry of the Messiah. Surely he has borne our griefs. He has carried our sorrows. We were bruised for his iniquity. We were or he was bruised for our iniquity, um, and the chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. Now, Peter, in his epistle, I think it's First Peter, might be Second Peter, but in one of his letters toward the end of the New Testament, he quotes this section of Isaiah, saying that Jesus has healed us spiritually. He's saved us from sin by his 
redemption. What I find interesting, although most commentators will say, um, when Jesus died on the cross, uh, His atonement uh, was only to secure our salvation, has nothing to do with our physical healing. I do find it interesting that Matthew quotes the same section of Isaiah and uses it to refer to physical healing. At the Last Supper, when Jesus held up the elements, held up the bread, held up the wine, and he said, take this and eat it. This is my body, which is broken for you. I've always read that and I thought, what do you mean it's broken for us? Doesn't the Bible specifically say that not a bone of him will be broken? That was a prediction and it was fulfilled. The other guys had their bones broken. Jesus had no bone at all broken. It was one of the requirements in bringing a lamb for sacrifice for Passover to not break a bone. But Jesus said, this is my body which is broken for you. Jesus died on the cross. His death secured salvation. The finished work, we don't add anything to it. But Jesus didn't just go to the cross. He was scourged prior to that. A Roman whip, a cat of nine tails with bits of lead and glass and stone that lacerated and broke through the skin, exposing the muscle, the subcutaneous tissues... A question might be, if Jesus' death was enough to secure our salvation, why would God the Father allow all of that suffering up until the point of death, like the scourging? Now, I know there's many fine commentaries on this kind of stuff and lots of debate, but I find that the finest commentary on the Old Testament is the New Testament. And though I definitely see this spiritual healing in the atonement of Christ, I also see that according to Matthew, he quotes the same text referring to physical healing. Now, I will grant many of those commentators who will say, well, for most of us, that physical healing probably won't take place until the resurrection of our body in the future. Okay, I can buy that because not everyone is healed. I understand that. But I also know that when Paul was speaking about communion with the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, he said, because many of you are not discerning the Lord's body when you take communion, many of you are sick and many of you have died. And so when somebody says, would you pray for healing? Would you lay hands on us for healing? Would you anoint us with oil? I absolutely will do that. And I will bring as much faith as the Lord has put in me to that event. And I will try to find, if I see people around the room, those that I know that have great faith. Leaving it in the hands of God, but also knowing that if the Lord wills, this person could be healed right here, right now. I don't want to limit Jesus of Nazareth and say, well, He healed back then, and one day He'll heal our bodies in the future. True. True. But he might want to do it now. He might not. But you have not because you... So let's ask. 
enough said. And when Jesus saw, verse 18, great multitudes about him, he gave a command to depart to the other side. Now we have a text question. I want to throw it up because it's launching us into waters we're going to get into. And I probably won't answer this immediately and fully, but I do want to bring it up because this is where we're headed toward the end of the chapter. It says, are demons still permitted to possess people today? I just want to pause just because it's such a great question. And you're going like, well? Yes, he is. I believe I've seen those who were demon-possessed. In fact, to my own chagrin, I will admit that I once asked spirits to possess my body. Thank God the Lord preserved me from that. But I, I believe that There are some things in this life that you can only attribute to the working of Satan. It's tough to explain Adolf Hitler. It's tough to explain certain despots, Pol Pot and others, who have done things that are just inhuman. Apart from being open to the notion of demon possession. But those are waters that I said we're getting into, so we'll, we'll kind of save that. When Jesus saw great multitudes about him, he gave a command to depart to the other side. The other side is the eastern side. If Capernaum is on the northwestern side, the eastern side. Um, And if you go there today, uh, well, I'm getting ahead of myself. Come with us this coming spring and I'll show it to you firsthand. Then a certain scribe came and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. That's a great thing to say, isn't it? You know, Jesus tells his disciples, come on, let's get out of here. Get in the boat. And there comes this guy saying, I want to come. I'll get in the boat. He's probably got one leg in the boat. Jesus said, ah, wait a minute. Foxes have holes. Birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Now, that might sound a little bit harsh. Because here's a guy going... I want to come. He's raising his hand. I want to come. I want to sign up. I want to be on Jesus' team. This is cool. Jesus isn't saying, don't follow me. Don't come along with me. He's simply saying, before you do, understand what it's going to cost you. I'm an itinerant preacher. I travel. I'm traveling. I'm going from place to place. I'm not staying in a house anymore. I'm staying in different places every night. I'm sleeping here, I'm sleeping there. And besides that, there's lots of crowds all around me, so the demands on my life are many. If you're signing up to follow me like these disciples are, it's going to be a rough life. It's going to be tough. There's going to be lots of demands. So he's not saying, don't follow me, don't come. You can't be my disciple, but simply count the cost. Then another of his disciples said to him, Again, a disciple, not an apostle. It's a follower. He's already following him since it says he is a disciple. Said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Now, before we get to Jesus' answer, just notice that verbal construction. You know, sometimes you'll read a sentence and you go, wait a minute. That's a self-canceling statement. 
Verbally, that's an oxymoronic statement. Sometimes it's just a moronic statement, but sometimes it's an oxymoronic statement. It's self-canceling. Notice, Lord, let me first. Okay, now just analyze that. You can't say that. You can't call him Lord, which means master, and I submit to you. Lord, me first. Right? Because if you're living life for you first, he's not your Lord. And if he's your Lord, it's not you first. It's him first. But here is a disciple saying, Lord, me first. It's about me now. It's about my needs. It's about my wants. Lord, me first. Let me first go and bury my father. That sounds like a legitimate request. Guy's got to go home, right? Have a funeral for his dad. His dad died, right? Look what Jesus said. But he said to him, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. And before you go, what a mean Messiah. (laughs) Most scholars believe that this is a figurative way of saying, let me first go home and take care of my dad until he dies. He's sick. He has a little bit of time left. But basically, I want to follow you. I just want a little time off from following you. I want a little vacation from being a disciple. I really want to get on board with you and do the, all, the, the, the whole Jesus disciple thing, but, but not right now. First, I've got some family things to do. When Jesus said, let the dead bury their dead, I think the New Living Translation nailed it when it translated it. Let the spiritually dead bury the physically dead. In other words, there are some tasks that unbelievers can do as well as believers. And the choice isn't between something good and something evil, but between something good and something better. You, as a follower of Jesus, can do lots of things that anybody could do. But there are certain things that only you as a disciple can do. Do that. And if something that is a a good task, a noble task interferes with the calling God has on your life, then it can never be Lord me first. It has to be, you're the Lord you first. I will forego that. I will give that up. I will not do that. See, so many Christians spend so much time arguing these kind of questions. Well, can I as a Christian do that? Or are we allowed to do this? Or can we listen to that music? Or can we go there? It's like, a ridiculous argument because when you put Jesus as the Lord, there's lots of things you just don't do because Jesus is Lord and you don't want to stumble Jesus' children. So a disciple can never say, me first. Jesus said, let the dead bury their dead. Wasn't the answer he wanted to hear. And when Jesus got into a boat... And his disciples followed him. And suddenly a great tempest arose on the sea so that the boat was covered with waves. But he was asleep. I love this. Who sleeps in weather like this? Jesus. Then his disciples came to him and awoke him up saying, Lord, save us. We're perishing. But he said to them, why are you so fearful? O you of little faith. Then he arose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. The Sea of Galilee is 600 feet below sea level. It's in a depression 
a geological formation called the Syrio-African Rift. It's fresh water, but it's below sea level, six to 700 feet. So this is what happens. When you have a body of water below sea level, and the warm air on the Sea of Galilee rises, it creates a vacuum. The vacuum is filled when cooler air off the coast, the Mediterranean, just several miles to the west, will rush in from sea level and go downhill and gain speed and get shot through these narrow little canyons like the Horns of Hattin, which is a little geographical rock formation. You can see, if, if we were tonight on the Sea of Galilee, I could point up and show you the funnel where the wind comes from. So it sort of acts like a carburetor when you get air and gas flowing through a a tiny little tube, a venturi, and it's shot through there, and it accelerates as it goes, and then it gets into the the piston of the engine. So what what happens with with this kind of a formation is the Sea of Galilee can be like glass. You look at it and go, man, this is like, if this were the ocean, it would be like perfect surf weather, just calm, just glassy. And then almost instantly you can get a storm that will come up on the Sea of Galilee that, that, that would capsize a boat. And these guys have been fishing a long time. They have seen these kind of squalls, but Jesus asleep in the boat? And so they wake him up. And Jesus rebukes them. Now, why does he rebuke them? Well, again, we have to compare maybe with another gospel to get the answer. In another gospel, Jesus tells them, let's go over to the other side. They should have listened to him. Because if Jesus tells you, we're going over to the other side, there's no way you're going under. So he's sleeping. He knows they're going to make it. I said, we're going over. Where's your faith? You you have little faith. That's where I think the rebuke came in because Jesus made them a promise. Let's go over to the other side. And if Jesus is in your boat and he tells you you're going over, don't sweat the storm. Well, we're out of time, so more on that next week and the whole demon thing for next time. Actually, we're going to have to wait a few weeks because next week we have... Is next week Fernando? Oh, yeah, next week you don't want to miss. Our kids are going to minister to us next week. You're going to hear, you're going to see the kids have been working on something for a long time. We want to come out and encourage them and be a part of that and have a big celebration next Wednesday night. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we're grateful that we have these Wednesday nights to expound the truths of the Word of God, to expand our knowledge by explaining the scriptures. Lord, truly our fellowship is around the inspired word of God and the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are a textual community. We believe the Bible that you have given is inspired and inerrant. It's not that we worship it. We worship the God who gave it. But we pray, Lord, that through its precepts and principles, it would draw us into deeper relationship with you. And as we discover these stories, some of us afresh, some for the first time.
I pray, Lord, that we would be those kind of people that are inclusive, reaching out to the lepers in our society. Those that have been relegated to the sidelines. And to be the body of Christ, the hands, the feet, the mouthpieces of Jesus. Lord, I pray for everyone who is gathered here tonight, that as they leave, filled with your Holy Spirit, being ambassadors of you in this community, that you would do your work through them. That we would leave like Peter's mother-in-law and serve you. So grateful that you changed us that we're never going to let you hear the end of it. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. If you would like more information about what you've heard in this message or about Calvary of Albuquerque, please visit our website at www.calvaryabq.org. If you have made a decision to follow Christ or would like someone to pray for you, please leave a message with our prayer watch line at 505-344-3658. Thank you and God bless.